0: I, too, am thankful for the chance to bring you God's Word again. It's been a little bit, and it's good to see you. It is uh, always a sobering privilege uh, to have the opportunity uh, to open up God's Word. And uh, there are some passages that are um, particularly sobering and and privileges. (laughs) I'll just make that word up. Um, This is one of those passages. Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of John in the third chapter. If you have them, otherwise feel free to listen along as we read the first 21 verses. John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly I say to you, We speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe... How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning in need of your Spirit once again to open up these words To us. Lord, we need your Spirit to open our ears to hear it, to open our eyes so that we can see it. For apart from his work, Lord, we are but blind and deaf. We pray that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive your instruction, that we may give you glory. In Christ's name, amen. Hi, what's your name? This is a uh, pretty common question that we might ask if we're feeling particularly adventurous at a social gathering and we feel like reaching outside of our comfort zone and going up to that person we don't know. Hi, what's your name? We don't think about it very much, but this question used to have a great deal more significance tied up in what's your name was, who are your parents, who are your people, our birth, something over which we have, let's admit it, pretty much no control. As much as expectant mothers may be frustrated at their children for not coming when they want them to come, uh, it's not really the kid's fault, at least as far as I know, Um, I've not personally experienced it. I mean, I personally experienced birth, but I don't remember much about it. Um, We don't have a lot of control over our birth, but it has a lot of control over us. Where we're from affects us. Now, over the last hundred years or so, our culture has done just about everything it can to get rid of the significance of this reality, of the significance of our birth where we're from, who our people are. And given the horrific wars and genocides that have been fought in the name of superior birth, you can kind of cut our society some slack. We've, we've been disturbed by and oppressed by those who say they have superior birth, superior names. But... Even in its most dramatic form, this rejection of our birth is usually done in some sort of attempt to find our true self. Have you noticed that? Even those who are seeking to radically alter themselves and the way they were born are typically doing it in the name of finding out who they really are. You might even say, That they're trying to discover some sort of rebirth, some sort of second birth, you may even say. So here's the question that this passage is forcing us to ask what kind of answer do we have to give that person? That person who is seeking to radically alter themselves in order to find out who they really are, that person who's trying to find some way to discover their true birth, their true origin, what is the answer that we have to offer them? Because we can't offer them an answer that we haven't given to ourselves. We can't give what we have not yet received. And this passage calls on us to recognize that that, this question of of what we have to offer isn't really a question for those out there. It's a question for in here. Do we have an answer that we've given to ourselves that we can then offer to others? So John's gospel, uh, uh, by the way, it's always difficult to parachute into a text, so I recognize I'm going to be vastly oversimplifying context here. Um, but I take some comfort in the fact that I believe your pastor has been going through the Gospel of John and just finished up. So about three years ago, I think you had some context for this passage. So, so good. You, you remember all that, so we won't have to cover it again. But just in case, for those of you who weren't here... Um, we're, we're coming to John's Gospel in, in chapter 3, which tells us it's near the beginning, right? For all you math whizzes, it's near the beginning. It's near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And John, not needing to lay the groundwork that uh, the other synoptic Gospels have given about the life of Jesus, he gives us these snapshots of Jesus' interactions. And, and he records for us here the light of the world confronting the darkness in a series of discourses and dialogues with particular individuals. And darkness comes in strange places. Darkness is found not where you would expect. And light is found responding to light in places you wouldn't expect. And so we're going to look at this discourse with Nicodemus under two headings. The inadequacy of first birth and the beauty of second birth. All for the goal of having that answer to give to that person, wanting to know, where is that second birth that I'm longing for? So let's look first at the inadequacy of first birth. And first we should think about Nicodemus just a bit. Nicodemus is a classic first birther, another made-up word, but Hopefully it sticks in your mind. Nicodemus is a classic example of a first birther. Um, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Now, you've heard a good bit about Pharisees, I would imagine. But to clarify, Pharisees in their day were descended from those who sought to preserve the truth in the face of extreme persecution. Pharisees were the Jews who were the good Jews, who were seeking to hold fast the law. And if you consider their perspective, you can understand why they would seek so hard to protect that system, because they were good students of the history of Israel. And those who hadn't protected it had brought the wrath of God on them, and they had brought the exile on them. And so if you studied The prophets, you would have understood, we need to make sure we are doing what God has told us to do. And so they're trying to protect Israel from the corruption of the world out there. Pharisees had so much right. And yet, in their efforts to protect God's law, to protect God's people from corruption, they externalized their religion. And, and they made it something that you could measure externally. If you want an analogy, it's as if they were trying to preserve Israel by freezing it. Which does certainly lock in the juices if you've ever had frozen food. But it does no good to that which is frozen at the time. They locked it in place. Let's batten down the hatches. We're going through a hard time. This is the perspective of the Pharisees. And I want to pause for just a moment and encourage us to examine our own hearts in a time when our world, our culture, is shifting and is losing the truth. In a time when it seems as though they are doing everything they can to corrupt God's law, to corrupt us. This is going to be our temptation. We, like the Pharisees, are going to be tempted to batten down the hatches. To freeze everybody. Stay. Stay safe. Stay where you are. Stay in a good place. So when we look at Nicodemus, someone that we've heard a good bit about, and, and uh, if we've been in the church for a long time, and, and we know he's the guy who doesn't get it right, it can be easy to say, well, I'm not, I don't want to be like him. We first ought to, in all humility, identify ourselves just a little bit with his situation. Nicodemus is facing a problem. We're facing the, pot, the potential of corruption, of losing everything, and then incurring the wrath of God. We must do something. Lock it down. This is the temptation of a classic first birther. But I want you to notice also that what this has done is it's blinded Nicodemus' It's blinded him. He's now ignorant of who the Messiah truly is. So he comes to Jesus and and with, I, I believe, a humble spirit, we can look at his attitude and smile because we know something of who Jesus is. But remember, if we had been Nicodemus, we would not have known. It would have been the first time we met Jesus in person and got a chance to dialogue with him. And we would not have known, and and we may have come with Nicodemus' attitude to say, Rabbi, a a title of respect. I respect you a great deal, Jesus. Because, Because we, those of us who are in authority, the elders of that church, of, there was no church, of that synagogue, of that group, of the Sanhedrin, we have come to a consensus, and you must be a teacher, come from God. So Close. And yet so far. Oh, he's from God. And oh yes, he's a teacher. So close. And yet so far. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Again, so close. Yet so far. God is with you. is very far from you are actually God. First birthers are blind but you notice they're confident in what they see. They're blind but they're confident in what they see. I've seen the signs that Jesus is doing and we have come to a consensus Jesus that these signs must mean that you are from God. And their their eyesight, well, uh, I'll give you an illustration. I'm I'm I am incredibly nearsighted. Once I get past here, it gets fuzzy. So it would be like me being extremely confident about what I see four inches in front of my face and making confident assertions as I run into everything on the road. But I was confident about what was right in front of me, but I couldn't see beyond four inches. So is Nicodemus. He says, I can see clearly something is going on here and you must be from God. And yet his eyesight is, is too low, and we're going to see the impact that that has. We are like this. We are like Nicodemus. We, we in order to preserve our own safety, in order to preserve and, and compartmentalize and make the Christian life something that's safe, we, we will construct ways to analyze how we can make sure that we're being good Christians, how we can make sure that we aren't being corrupted. And if we're not careful, we will only be able to see four inches in front of our face. And when Jesus shows up with his teaching, we will be blind to that. We all have a tendency towards being first birthers who rely not on Christ, but who rely on, well... I've been a Christian my whole life. Well, I'm part of a church. Well, I do these things. Well, everybody around me says I'm good. I look like everybody else. Are these things bad? No. What I'm referring to is what we rely on. First birthers say, I'm in. Now I need to preserve what keeps me in. So, this helps explain why Jesus' statement could be so disruptive in verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, or uh, more literally, from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I want you to imagine how disruptive this would have been. Knowing what we know of Nicodemus, he comes with confidence that he has assessed Jesus and he knows who he is and he knows where he is coming from and he wants to learn from Jesus. He wants Jesus to teach him. Tell me something about who we are supposed to be in God's name. And Jesus says, your birth is not enough. Now this would have been particularly challenging for Nicodemus Because for a good Israelite, being tied by birth back to original Israelites was crucial. Your first birth was critical. Because if you had mingled with other nations, it would have been devastating. That's what they did in the past. We're not supposed to do that. But I am truly an Israelite. And Jesus says, that's not enough. It's not enough to be of Israel. Jesus forces him to realign his perspective, not on the construct that he has, but on Jesus. He says, you need a birth from above to even begin to see God's kingdom. Notice he's challenging Nicodemus' assumption. Nicodemus comes saying, I can see clearly who you are. You must be from God. And Jesus says, You can't see anything unless you have a birth from above. Nicodemus thought his first birth was from God and made him part of his kingdom. And so he worked to preserve all the constructs that would preserve his first birth. And so he rejects Jesus' claim. He scoffs at the idea. Some people think uh, Nicodemus must be a little bit dense. You know, that that he's just not really understanding what Jesus is saying. Um, No. Nicodemus is a highly intelligent person. He's making fun of what Jesus said. How can a man re-enter his mother's womb? He's like, that's ridiculous. From his perspective, it's Ridiculous. It would be like me, without my contacts in, saying, how can someone drive a car? You can't even see farther than four inches. Uh, if you can only see four inches, then that is all the world there is. So Nicodemus scoffs at him, because all he can see is an earthly birth. How can someone go back into his mother's womb when he is old and Jesus disrupts his assumptions. So then he goes on to explain in a way that doesn't help. <laughs> it helps us, but it doesn't help Nicodemus. Jesus said with that, same, um, with that same code of assurance, most assuredly, truly, truly, verily, verily, this is certain, he says with authority. No, no, no. This is a birth of water. And spirit. And not only can you not see the kingdom of God without this birth, you can't enter it. And Nicodemus says, I already am part of the kingdom of God. What are you saying? I already am, you could hear him say today. I already am a Christian. What are you saying? Unless you're born of water and the spirit. Now, we've heard this so much. We've heard this so much that it can go in one ear and out the other. And many people have debated, is this a uh, reference to baptism? Is this, uh, when is he talking about the Holy Spirit and when is this the spirit of a person? And, and what are the different pieces that are... I want to focus here on the distinction that Jesus is making. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. He's telling Nicodemus, You're born of the flesh. You have a physical birth, a physical tie to Israel. It would be like saying to me, who was born a Presbyterian child and baptized as an infant and part of the covenant, He's saying, You have a physical tie to the church. But that's not enough. It would be like saying to uh, someone who has believed later in life and made a decision and come to Christ. And ten years later, that is what they boasted and saying, no, that's not enough. You have to be changed spiritually, not just of the flesh. What is the washing of water? That's not what Jesus is referring to. He's saying you need a spiritual change inside of you. But here's where it gets very disturbing and unhelpful to us nearsighted first-birthers. He says, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. To play on words, the word for spirit is the same for wind. But he's saying the spirit is like the wind. The wind to us, and particularly to a first century individual who didn't even know what we know about meteorology, which by the way, all we know now is something about what happens. We really, it is still a mystery even as we understand air currents more and, and that makes us feel better. Oh, now we know what the wind does. We still have no control over the wind. Ask anyone who's been through a hurricane or a tornado, the wind blows where it will. And then God ties the Spirit to that. He says the Holy Spirit is like that. What? I don't like that. I don't like that. Particularly not if I have compartmentalized my idea of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be safe, of what it means to truly believe in Jesus. Particularly not if I have a construct of what's going to keep me safe from what's going on out there in the world. What keeps me safe is something that's like the wind? He's saying, you need rebirth from something that blows wherever it wants to. And you can't control it. All you can do is see its effects. If you haven't considered the terrifying reality of the nature of the Holy Spirit, (laughs) consider it now. You have no control over the wind. What Jesus has reduced Nicodemus to here is not not trying to contain the wind in some way. Jesus says, Nicodemus, your best hope is to get where the wind blows and put up a sail. That's your job. Get where the wind blows and put up a sail. Have you ever thought about that being what we do every Sunday? We don't harness the Holy Spirit. We, we don't contain it. We just know where He likes to live. He likes to live where this is preached. He likes to live where Jesus' name is proclaimed, where God is glorified. That's where He loves to work. And so we come every week and we put up our sail. And we hope that He blows. We have no control over the Holy Spirit. This is destabilizing to the first birther. Yeah, but I, I, I've applied the covenant sign. Yeah, but but I did this, and and I I made sure that I was being good to these people, and and I I have tried to evangelize, and 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 I I, I need to protect my family by making sure that we don't watch certain things, and. And I have certain constructs that keep me safe, but you're telling me that none of that actually helps if the wind doesn't blow? It's disturbing to first birthers. It's out of control. But if you think about it, the second birth is no more out of control than your first birth. Remember, we don't have much control over either one, at least as I recall. The spirit is like the wind. And our role is reduced to being good sailors. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? And I hope you sympathize with him by now. I hope you sympathize with him to recognize just what Jesus has deconstructed in his assumptions. He has torn down anything that he would rely on apart from this spiritual birth that comes from above. Here's where it gets good. Secondly, the beauty of second birth. So Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Jesus responds to Nicodemus' wonder and confusion by saying, Nicodemus, this is not mysterious and it's not hidden. It's always been this way. You ought to know better, Nicodemus, for God has made this clear. Notice Jesus points out the problem here is not with God being confusing or opaque or making this truth difficult to understand. The problem is with Nicodemus and his unbelief. Do you see that? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. Jesus is coming, either referring to John the Baptist or God himself. We are testifying what is true, what we have seen. But you don't receive our witness. You can't believe this. Even though... God said it. God said it. Notice here in verse 13. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. That's an allusion to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Moses has just explained to the people of Israel that if they reject God, and if they seek God, other gods but then they return to him in repentance God will turn to them and restore them and he finishes this section by saying this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you nor is it far off it is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it Did you hear the illusion He's saying, you don't have to climb to heaven to get this truth. God has already come down. By the way, he's speaking to people thousands of years before Jesus came down. He's saying to the people of Israel, this temple, these sacrifices, they're not here to obscure the reality of who God is. They're here to reveal the reality that he's come to dwell with you, to be with you. That you're sinners in need of grace. And yet, what do we see people do to these things that God gives us to represent his grace and his love and his mercy? We see them turn them into some way to climb to heaven. That's in our hearts. God gives us access to himself. He comes near. He comes down close to us. And we take those means and use them to build a ladder so we can climb to him. (laughs) And it's as if he's on the earth saying, what are you doing? Why are you trying to get up? I'm right here. I'm right here. He says, no one can ascend to heaven. That's what you're trying to do, Nicodemus. You're trying to climb your way up. No one can ascend to heaven. But guess what? The Son of Man who is in heaven has come down. And you can't see him because you can't see past four inches in front of your face. But he goes on, God has not only said it, Nicodemus, and you missed it, God showed it. Look at verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. God not only teaches us in a way that requires our rational functions to process and, and, and work through these teachings, God knows we are rational beings. God also knows we're visual. God also knows that we are whole human beings and that we live experientially. And so he's not only taught the people of Israel that Nicodemus should have picked up on, he literally showed them through actions. Because Israel, as is accounted in Numbers 21, verse 9, this experience of the bronze serpent, Israel, in their rebellion against God, in their sin, they are attacked by snakes. And when bitten by these poisonous snakes, they will die. And all they can do as they are dying, their only hope is to look at this bronze serpent that Moses has set on a pole High enough so that people could see it from around the camp. Bitten by snakes because of their sin, dying, helpless, having to look in faith to something else to save them. Nicodemus, are you picking up on what I'm laying down? Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, since the garden, we have only been snake-bitten sinners, helpless. And our only hope is to look to someone else, to look to God for grace by faith. Second birth has always been the only option for us. Birth from above that comes into us. This is nothing new, Nicodemus. But he goes on to say, it's not only nothing new, now it is a reality. Now it is a reality. There is, as he continues in verse 14, there's no need for Moses' temple. There's no need to construct something out of that to ascend into heaven. The Son of Man now is here in the flesh. We don't need that temple. We don't need that sacrificial system because the heavenly temple it represents is going to be entered into by that eternal sacrifice. There's no need for bronze serpents that you will just turn into idols to worship. Yet another picture of finding salvation in something they could control. Read 2 Kings 18 to see what they did with that bronze serpent. A representation of their helplessness, they turned into something that they could ascend to heaven with. There's no need for those bronze serpents anymore. It was just a picture of the Son of Man who now is going to be lifted up, Nicodemus. That whoever out of helpless faith believes on him may have eternal life. What a disproportionate reward. Is it not? What a disproportionate reward. We lay on the bed, writhing in pain, looking up through blurry eyes at this person lifted up, and we just believe, and we get eternal life. It's got to cost more than that. There's got to be something more that we've got to do than that. That's the first birther inside of each of us. I need to have something more I can do than that. No, he says. Why? Why is it so disproportionate? Because God loved the world. Because God is love. And he loves that which is unlovable. Can you imagine how that would have struck Nicodemus's ears? Nicodemus, who has carefully constructed with his compadres a, a system to preserve Israel from the world, is now told that those disgusting people out there are people that God loves. Those unsafe, scary people who are going to corrupt us are people that God loves. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Who does he love? The world, the unclean, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the homosexuals, the transgenders. The He loves them. He loves them. Really? Yes. And they're dying. But he loves them. So much that he sent his son to die for them. First birthers, we we can't take that. How can you love them? They're a threat. They're a threat to us. They're not a threat to God. They're not a threat to God. First birthers want to preserve what we have. Make sure that we have standards to protect who we are and and how we can stay the way that we are. And God says, I love this evil world that is perishing so much that I sent my son to die for it, God says, God did not send his son to condemn. That has been a really challenging verse for me at different points in my life. But there's so much out there to condemn, God. <laughs> there's so much out there to condemn. It's so bad. Can't you see how bad it is? Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn. I came to save But we condemn that which doesn't fit our construct, that which doesn't fit our paradigm. We condemn it. We have no room for it. It's risky. It's unsafe. Quickly, as soon as someone believes, change them into our image. Quickly, move faster, new convert. You have to look like a good Christian quickly. He says, no. And it's terrifying. Lord, what's going to keep us safe? You remember that wind thing I referred to a little while ago? That's what's going to keep you safe. Whoa. I have to rely on the Holy Spirit to keep your people safe. Are you sure that's enough? Can you hear the the logic? Are you sure the Holy Spirit's enough, God? I mean, it sounds ridiculous if you know your systematic theology. Is the Holy Spirit enough to preserve God's people, that's the first First birther. That's the first birther in us talking. Are you sure the Holy Spirit's enough to keep us safe, God? Are you sure your love is enough to change people's hearts? Don't we have to make sure they look like us? No, second birthers look with compassion on the world Seeking to spread the good news. You don't have to afflict yourself to climb to heaven. You don't have to afflict yourself like the prophets of Baal, trying to get God's attention. He's come, He's near, He's close by. He came in the flesh so you can know Him. Don't do this to yourself. Come to Him, He is nearby. And He doesn't require anything of you except faith in Christ. But, while Jesus says He did not condemn, he did, God did not send His Son, Jesus, into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world, it does not mean that condemnation doesn't come through Him. The good news of the second birth is not good news to everyone. Jesus makes that clear. He says, he who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Jesus did not come the first time to condemn but to save. But when the light comes and the darkness recoils... And the darkness says, no, you're you're taking away my control. No, you're taking away my systems. No, the Holy Spirit is not what I want to rely on. No, I want something more than faith. And helpless faith at that. He says, this is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. I told you, darkness came in strange places. And the darkness of Jesus' day came most prominently in those who should have recognized him. It came in the church of that day. The the church of that day was full of darkness. Darkness full of those who didn't recognize him. And their condemnation came because they didn't believe in him. They didn't know what that really meant. They still thought it came with a lot of strings attached. First birthers of all types will cling to their desire to control and will refuse to accept that they are helpless sinners whose only hope is faith in Christ, full stop. We talk all the time about our only hope being in Christ and then we carefully take all of the pieces he gives us and build a ladder so we can climb our way to heaven, so we can puff ourselves up. The problem isn't out there, the problem is in here. It's in our hearts. We are all first birthers. We all rely on something other than Christ and as soon As we fall in humble dependence on Him and beg Him for forgiveness, five minutes later we're back to doing it again. Which is why this message is so important for us. Jesus came to provide an answer to that person that we talked about in the beginning, that person who's looking for second birth. What answer do we have to give? Is it the answer of Nicodemus? Make sure you conform to the system I've carefully constructed. Or is it the answer that Jesus gives? You need radical transformation from a spirit that is like the wind. So you better put up your sail. What answer do we give? Do we start with, here's how you can make yourself right, even subtly? Or do we start with, you only have a prayer? If it's the second one, and we have love in our hearts, seeking to find a way to get it to those who need it, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Because we all need it. Not just those out there. We need it in here. We need to be reminded of it in here. Every time we're struggling with what what should I do? How should I improve myself? Go back to Christ. Well, how? How am I going to do that? I'm struggling with this sin issue. Let me explain repentance to you again. Let me explain how you are dependent on the Holy Spirit to change you. Praise the Lord if that is our response. But if we do not have love for the world, we need to ask ourselves, who do I look more like, Nicodemus or Christ? Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to you for the good news of second birth. That birth from above, we thank you that you have given us your spirit to change us, to to transform us from the inside out. We thank you for the evidence of that that we see all over the place, even in this room. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ and our utter dependence on him. We pray that you would forgive us for seeking other ways to make ourselves holy for relying on our first birth and not relying on our spiritual birth in Christ. We pray that you would please send us from this place ready, prepared to love those whom you love and to bring this good news to them. And we pray this in Christ.